right, thank you. Wonderful singing tonight. Tremendous truth that we've sung. Ephesians chapter 1 in your Bibles tonight. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to go to the, one of the Grand Canyon sections in the Word of God tonight. And that is uh, uh, really true, as we'll see here in a moment in Ephesians 1 and 2. Before we get there, let me mention a couple books there that are still on the table. Uh, there is a book called The Prayer That Makes a Difference. This is actually a biography of my grandmother, my father's mother. Uh, she, uh, she saw remarkable answers to prayer on a regular basis. Now, I knew her. She was a regular person. <laughs> she laughed, she giggled, she cracked jokes, <laughs> and so forth. Uh, but she had a simple childlike faith. And what you see with people like this, it's not that they were great people, but they were just a regular person who learned to trust in a great God and therefore saw remarkable answers to prayer. So that's her story. And uh, then there is a book called The Revival Journey. Many of the books on the table are dealing more with personal revival. This one is dealing more predominantly with what we could call corporate or that group or the larger uh, scenes of revival, the seasons of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. And it walks you through the phases of revival that are discernible in the Word of God, obviously illustrated throughout history. Uh, when uh, there are those who begin to realize there must be more, and they begin to seek God's reviving presence. And then you have that moment where God manifests His presence. The Bible makes it clear God is everywhere present. But the truth is, in a 50-mile radius of where we are right now, there are thousands of people that are not aware of the presence of God at this moment at all. God is not in their thoughts, even though God is everywhere present. But there are those moments in the Word of God, the Bible spells this out, where God manifests His presence in a given vicinity. And when that happens, everyone in that vicinity, whether it's a room like this or a region like this peninsula, everyone in that vicinity becomes conscious of God. I'm going to tell you, American culture needs that. An awareness of the presence of God. And so, uh, never preached on that yet uh, here. Maybe someday we'll look at that. It's a marvelous truth. But when that happens, when you see God for who He is, you see sin for what it is. <laughs> and that's what brings people to brokenness and to their knees and to bowing to the Lord. And uh, uh, that uh, for those who are saints, those who are backslidden, it brings them to revival. For those who are lost, it brings them to salvation. So we go into that. There's a final chapter that deals uh, with some other related issues in that regard. Well, tonight we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1 and uh, a couple of verses in chapter 2. Much of what we've said so far in this meeting and as well as previous meetings has revolved around the marvelous truth of Jesus Christ in you. In other words, that when you get born again, not only do you get a new destiny, but Jesus moves into you. The Spirit of Jesus brings the very life of Jesus right into your being. See, that's salvation. It's not just going to heaven, it's getting Jesus into you. <laughs> and no other religion has the founder moving right into the hearts of the followers. <laughs> Remember this Buddhist kid, uh, grad school, I was talking to on a plane going from uh, Singapore to Yangon. And the thought that Jesus moved in and brought his very eternal life right into you. He goes, that is fantastic. Well, it is. And before we landed in Yangon, that uh, young man was uh, placing his faith in Jesus as Savior. It's a marvelous truth. Christ is in you. But there's another truth that is very connected, and that is not Christ in you, but you in Christ. This is one of the great realities for those who put their faith in Jesus. 
What are the ramifications of that? Well, we're going to see tonight there are some powerful ramifications. There are many. We're going to look at one major slice of it tonight. Christ in you is the power of Jesus in you to deal with the down here, the world, the flesh. You in Christ is to deal with, can I use the terminology, up there. That is the spirit realm where there is spiritual warfare. This same book of Ephesians says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but there's a wrestling match against principalities and powers and uh, so forth. And so let's look at a passage that shows us the provision that God has given his children, those who know him, to deal with the enemy. It's a marvelous truth. So Ephesians chapter 1, hope you have your Bible open. I'll begin to read in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us. Now who's the us here? Well, he says in verse 1, he's talking to the saints. Uh, Not uh, saints in the sense that many have in their minds today, but as the Bible defines saint, it's a holy one. In other words, when you get saved, the Holy Spirit moves in. That makes you a saint. We talked about that last night. Okay, so he's talking to believers in Jesus. And here's what he said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath or has already, past tense, blessed us, believers, with all. That's an amazing word. Spiritual blessings. So he's very clear here. He's not saying necessarily all physical blessings. He is saying that when you are a child of God, you have already been blessed with all. That is every spiritual blessing. That's incredible. Where? It says in heavenly places. Now, this is a fascinating phrase. What's it talking about? Do you know that in Ephesians chapter 6, in the passage I just referenced, that talks about the enemy, uh, and it gives some details about the, the host of wickedness, and it's a spiritual host of wickedness in high places. That's the same word here translated heavenly places. It's talking about another realm. It's talking about the spiritual realm, the spirit realm, okay? So we're told that when you become a child of God, you are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the spiritual realm. But in that realm, there's good and bad. There's God and there are evil spirits. So where in that realm do we receive these blessings? Look at the last two words. In Christ. Now let's go further with this. He prays for these Ephesian believers. Verse 15, he talks about hearing of their faith and how, verse 16, he gives thanks. And he uh, uh, prays for them, verse 16, verse 17. Uh, He prays specifically that, uh, uh, that the spirit of wisdom would be given them so that they could understand. And then he gets very specific in verse 18, so that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. In other words... Paul the Apostle is writing under inspiration an inspired letter that is a part of the Word of God. But even still, he knows that without the Holy Spirit's help, they won't get it. And so he's praying that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened by the Holy Spirit of wisdom, who's the one who reveals truth, as we saw there, uh, as you see there in verse 17. So verse 18, that your eyes uh, uh, of understanding be enlightened, that you may know, know experientially what is the hope of his calling and what is the, uh, the riches, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us, 
who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ. Now notice this. When he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand. That's the throne. That's authority. Now notice, in the heavenly places. There's that phrase. So God raised Christ and set him at his own right hand. You sang about it tonight. And it says that's in the heavenly places. It's in that spiritual realm. But now notice the next verse, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. You sang it tonight, the name that is above all names. That's why, because this same Jesus uh, was raised from the dead and set at the right hand of the Father far above every other name. That's what it says. And every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet. See, that's authority. And gave him to be the head. That's authority. Over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him. That's amazing. That filleth all in all and you. Well, there's a chapter break right there. And we often miss the and. There's a connection here. Verse 6. And has raised us. Up together. Remember, just talked about raising Jesus and made us sit together. Just talked about seating Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And it says, made us sit together. Where? In the heavenly places. That's the spiritual realm. Where in that realm? In Christ. Now, friends, the bottom line is Christ sits right now at the right hand of the Father, far above the enemy, and you're seated there if you're a child of God because you're in Him. Whoa, it's like, got to sit there for a while, let that one sink in. <laughs> you see, you're seated with him. That's what it says. You're in him. He's on that throne. You're there. So what does that mean? What are the implications? What are the ramifications? What is the provision? What is the power of that truth? I want to speak tonight on a throne seat. We're going to pray one more time. Let me encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to do what was said here, to enlighten the eyes of your understanding. Blessed Holy Spirit of the living God, would you open our eyes tonight to the Grand Canyon realities of truth that connect to these words. May they not go over our heads. Lord, may they sink deep into our belief system, our hearts, as we saw last night. And Lord, would you nurture faith to deal with the enemy through your authority. I do plead the blood of Jesus that we sang about tonight to protect us from the attack of the evil one tonight who certainly doesn't want us to know what we're about to look into. So Lord Jesus, I claim our position in you on the throne that we're reading about right now. And in your name, I exercise your authority over any powers of darkness that would seek to hinder in this hour and in this night and in everything to do with this. And I trust you, Lord, that that not be allowed. May there not be that hindrance. Breathe on us now. Meet the need of every heart. Equip the saints. Saved, save the lost. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In December of 1949, a preacher by the name of Duncan Campbell went to the island of Lewis off the northwest coast of Scotland for what he thought was going to be a 10-day meeting. 
But as the Scottish put it, God stepped down from heaven. See, one of these seasons of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. God stepped down from heaven. And the move of the Spirit was so powerful that he preached on that island from village to village, not for 10 days, but for the next three years. <laughs> That's what I call a meeting. <laughs> and uh, wow, God moved. The, the churches all across the island, uh, the saints were revived. Multitudes of unsaved people were awakened and put their faith in Jesus. It was a powerful moving of the Spirit. Well, in April of 1950, so it began in December 49, so just a couple of months later in the village of Arnall. Uh, so the revival began in Bar, uh, Barvis. That's just a little village on the western coast of uh, the Isle of Lewis. But in the village of Arnold, not far away, when God moved, there was a teenager by the name of Donald McPhail, 16 years of age, tall kid, about six foot six, who got convicted by the Spirit that he needed to put his faith in Jesus, and he did, and trusted Jesus alone to save him from sin and hell. He was at that moment born again. Now, in the atmosphere of revival, he grew quickly. That can happen in times of revival. Discipleship gets kind of <laughs> accelerated in times of revival. And as the revival continued over 1950 and 1951, 1952, uh, he joined what was called the Praying Men of Barvis. In other words, there were several groups of intercessors that God used uh, calling on God to, to move on the island that led up to this revival. There were some ladies and there were some men. Well, the men were known as the praying men of Barvis. Well, he joined these men. Now, he's much younger. He's a teenager. So by now, he's maybe 17, maybe 18 years of age, and he's a part of this group. And as a Duncan Campbell would go to various villages across the island as the revival continued, uh, he'd get invited to another village. He'd go. Sometimes God would break through right away. Other times there would be a heavy atmosphere, and they needed a breakthrough. And so when that happened, he would ask the praying men to come. Pray. Well, he'd gone to a little village called Bernera. I've been to the little building where this happened. And uh, it was difficult to preach. Now, every preacher knows what it's like to preach and just feel like you're just in the mud. <laughs> and there's just a thickness in the atmosphere. And it just seems like there's interference. Well, there is. It's called the powers of the air. And he called for the praying men of Barvis to come, and they came. So Donald was with them, the teenager. He's now 17 or 18. And still, for the next couple of nights, no breakthrough, just heavy. And one night as Duncan Campbell was preaching, the atmosphere was so thick, so hard, so difficult to preach, he decided he would not finish his sermon, that he would just quit <laughs> and dismiss. I've been tempted to, but I've never had enough guts to do that. <laughs> but he just decided, this is it. I'm going to close in prayer. Let's get out of here. So as he stops preaching and he's about to close the service, it's a little tiny auditorium, about a third of the seats that you have here. My wife and I have been there. And he could see the tall team, six foot six, you know, kind of above everybody. As Duncan Campbell tells the story, you can hear it on audio today. And he says, he looked at that teenager and saw that that young man was nearer to God than I was. That's what Duncan Campbell says. So instead of stopping and dismissing, Duncan Campbell says, Donald, would you please stand and pray? The tall teen 
stood up. In the providence of God, that morning he had been reading in the book of Revelation, the scene that describes the Lamb, Jesus, seated on the throne. Revelation 4. And in his prayer, he references that scene and he prayed out, he cried out, Oh God, I seem to be gazing through an open door. I see the Lamb seated in the midst of the throne. And the teenager began to sob. And then he cried out, Oh God, there's power there. Let it loose. And in the next moment, the atmosphere that was so thick, so heavy, so, so much interference was immediately changed, showing that the powers of darkness had been banished. And God, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, had rent the heavens. He had torn through the powers of the air and come down and manifested the presence of Jesus. And with the atmosphere completely altered and all the interference gone, all of a sudden the truth that was getting hindered now had its full weight. It's what the Bible says in Thessalonians, that the Word of God has free course, no interference. And it's glorified. It's given its full weight. And with the truth coming down on people's hearts with no interference, people in that audience that had sin in their lives began to cry out to God for mercy. And the revival came and went on for a number of nights in that particular village. The saints revived the lost, born again, awakened. Now, what is that? It's quite a story, don't you think? By the way, my wife and I got to meet that guy in 2000. <laughs> He's now with the Lord. And uh, what a special time that was. Uh, he was 66 when we met him. But here was a teenager. So this is not based on spiritual maturity or how long you've been saved. This man, the young man, had only been saved at best two years. And he exercised throne seat authority and God moved powerfully, powerfully. So we have to ask ourselves, okay, if that's available to, to God's children, to God's people, am I exercising throne seat authority? Do I know anything about this? Well, what is the basis for this? Because wishful thinking will get us nowhere. And there are those who go beyond what the Bible says and they get themselves in all sorts of trouble and they make people afraid of this truth. The excesses of some had made, made others fear this. The misuse has produced a non-use of a Bible provision. So let's tonight look at the Word of God, the Scripture, and note three realities that you and I must comprehend and take by faith in order that we might exercise throne seat authority. Number one, comprehend the person of authority. We read about him here. His name is Jesus in Ephesians chapter 1. You remember in Matthew 28, uh, just before uh, Jesus ascended, he had, uh, he had risen from the dead, and uh, he was meeting with his disciples. And there, in the last part of those... 40 days just before he ascended, he, uh, he says in Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority is given unto me. 
In other words, something happened through the death and the resurrection of Jesus that is causing him to say, all authority, not some, all authority has been, not will be, has been given unto me. Go ye therefore, and we have the Great Commission. You see, Jesus has been given all authority. He is the person of authority. And so when he sent that to his disciples and gave that great commission, then uh, he ascended, they saw him leave, and then we read what happened at that point in Ephesians 1. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. That's the throne. And it says in verse 20, far above, and then it names the different factions among the enemy. You see, Jesus is the person of authority. Now, here's the key to spiritual warfare. You focus on Jesus. If you focus on the enemy, you can get yourself in big trouble. There are those who have done that, and they end up giving ground to Satan in the name of spiritual warfare. Well, that's a tragedy. No, we don't want to focus on the enemy. We focus on Jesus. He is the victor. Jesus Christ, the conquering king. Now... Christ is the king with all authority. So let's chew on this for a minute. The king with all authority. What happened? How does this work? Well, when God created, him, created the heavens and the earth and created mankind, we're told that God delegated the kingdom of earth to mankind. We read this in Genesis 1, verse 26. And God said... Let us make man in our image and let them have dominion, that's authority, over all the earth. And then he specifically names the fish, the birds, the cattle, and it says every creeping thing. That means when the serpent came into the garden, in what we read about in Genesis with Adam and Eve, they had the authority to say to the serpent, in the name of the Lord, be gone. But tragically, they did not exercise that authority that had been given unto them. First chapter of the Bible. And more tragically, Adam, see Eve was deceived, Adam disobeyed. Adam legally delivered over the kingdom of earth to Satan. For in obeying Satan's lie, Adam and Eve did not become like God, like Satan had promised. No, instead, they became, became Satan's slaves. Because the Bible tells us in Romans 6, 16, his slaves, you are to whom you obey. And when Adam became Satan's slave, then that means Satan became the owner of all that Adam possessed. That was the kingdom of earth. It was at that moment that Satan became what the New Testament calls the God of this world. Ah, and so the ruler of this world, some of these New Testament expressions. Now, in the temptation of Christ, as recorded in Luke chapter 4, let's jump ahead to the New Testament. We read the account where Satan showed Jesus, it says, all the kingdoms of the world. Fascinating. And the devil said to him, all this power, that's your authority word, 
will I give thee and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. Now, in order to package an effective lie, you have to misuse some truth. That's the bait. The truth part of what Satan said was that, yes, the kingdom of earth had been delivered to him. That's fascinating. As Satan sought to get the first Adam to obey him rather than God, he sought to get the last Adam, Jesus, to obey him rather than God with a very similar lie. But what Satan achieved with the first Adam, he failed to accomplish with the last Adam. However, since the kingdom of earth had been legally delivered over to Satan, it would have to be legally regained. Now, here's the good news. Jesus Christ legally regained the kingdom of earth. But to do so, sin had to be atoned for. The wages of sin had to be paid in order for the power and authority of Satan to be broken. Now, as far back as Genesis 3, when all this happened, you have the first prophecy of the, of the Redeemer and of redemption. Uh, when God said that the day would come when the seed of the woman, that's Jesus, would bruise, crush the head of the serpent. Now, that was prophetical in Genesis 3. Genesis 3. For us, it's past tense. In fact, just a few hours before the cross, Jesus in John 16, 11 says, the prince of this world is is judged, referring to the cross. In John 12, 31, he had already said, now the prince of this world will be cast out. In Colossians 2, 14 and 15, again referring to the cross, it says that Jesus spoiled, which means disarmed principalities and powers and made a public show of them, triumphing over them in it, the cross. So that in Hebrews 2, 14, it tells us that Jesus through death Destroy, that is rendered ineffective, him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So that even in the future, in Revelation 12, verse 11, it says, And they, the saints, overcame him, the devil. How? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Why the blood of the Lamb? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9, 22 tells us, And friends, on the cross, Jesus poured out his blood. He poured out his life in death that you and I might have his eternal life. And there on the cross, he said, It is finished, which means at that moment, there was the accomplishment of what was needed for everything that we're talking about. And then we're told that he rose again from the dead. And in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, when he by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, that's what we just read about in Ephesians chapter 1. Why did he sit down? Because sin had been atoned for. The wages of sin had been paid. The Lord Jesus Christ, through the cross, legally regained the kingdom of earth so that Jesus is now the reigning king in heaven. And yes, he will someday reign on this very planet earth. See, he's the king. Now, a king must of necessity have a kingdom. So let's talk about that for a second. And a kingdom has subjects and a realm in order to be a kingdom. Who are the subjects in Christ's kingdom? It says in Colossians 1.13, who has delivered us from the power of darkness 
and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. At this moment, those in this audience, those listening by way of live stream, you're either in the kingdom of darkness or you're in the kingdom of God's dear son, Jesus, who is light himself. For he said, I am the light of the world. You're in one or the other. Which kingdom are you in tonight? Friend, if you're in the wrong kingdom, you need to put your faith in Jesus. And God says he will translate you into the kingdom of his dear son. So those are the subjects. It's those who believe in Jesus. But what about the realm? Christ won all at the cross when he said, it is finished. But he has chosen in his sovereign wisdom to take the kingdom that he already won in stages. The present kingdom is not physical. Jesus is not right now physically reigning on planet Earth. <laughs> Far from it. As we take a look around every day, Jesus is obviously not reigning on earth. The present kingdom is not physical, it's spiritual. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 28, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is coming to you. And there's much more that we could look into, but the present kingdom is a spiritual realm, not a physical realm. That's important for us to understand. Now, the future kingdom will be both spiritual and physical. And books like Isaiah and Revelation detail the coming millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign when Jesus will reign on earth, not just in the spiritual realm. But what's fascinating as you look at this, what will be true physically then is true right now in the spiritual realm. And that's why there are some amazing verses in books like Isaiah that have such rich application in the spiritual realm right now. Do you know what verse was the foundation of faith for the Lewis revival that I just talked to you about? It was Isaiah 44 verse 3. I will pour water on him that is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit. You see, what will be true physically then is true spiritually now. So first of all, comprehend the person of authority. But let's go further. Secondly, comprehend the position of authority. Now, there's two thoughts here that the text unfolds, and we've got to get both of them. The first one is obviously incredibly important. That is Christ's position. We noted in verse 19, as Paul describes uh, uh, this, 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 this seating of Christ on the throne, it says, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power? See the word power? That's the word that means ability. Sometimes you'll hear uh, preachers refer to the Greek word underneath it. It's the word dunamis. Sometimes you'll hear them, hear them use the word dynamite. It's actually more specifically the idea of ability, okay? Then it says... According to the working, that's the word energy, of his mighty, that's the word sheer strength, power, that's a different word that means dominion. Now, in the Greek language, there are six words that can be translated power in English. So we see four of them right here. This is the only place in the New Testament where this many power words are used in one verse. God's ability, God's energy, God's sheer strength, God's dominion. What is all this describing? Okay, 
Next verse, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, let me just stop right there. What, what was it that made the resurrection of Jesus such that there's this power display? Were there not people raised from the dead in the Old Testament? Yes. Remember the widow's son and Elijah prayed and that boy was raised and so on? Well, what about in the Gospels? Did not Jesus raise people from the dead like Lazarus? Yes. So why the power display on this resurrection? It is because this is the first human body that would be resurrected into a glorified body, making Jesus the firstborn from the dead, as Colossians says. That's what it's talking about. Among many brethren, we also will be raised to a glorified body. His was the first. And so he was raised, and then it says... And set him at his own right hand. There's the throne that we've been talking about in the heavenly places in that spiritual realm. Christ seating at the throne was the sign of the regained authority. And that's why in Colossians it goes on to say that in all things he might have the preeminence. Why? He has all authority. And our text says here in Ephesians, far above all principality and power. Now, there's probably a few people in this audience that remember 1989, the Persian Gulf War. How many remember when the U.S. went into Baghdad in 1989? Okay, I remember this. Uh, and I mean, we had every branch of our military going in there. It was an unbelievable power to, uh, display. As it, as it happened, it all fell quickly. It, we didn't need near what we sent in. But it was an amazing power display. Well, we have a power display in this text. You see, the implication is there was a battle over the body of Jesus in the unseen realm. Now, the power display was not because this was going to be hard for God, because the Bible says there's nothing hard for God. It's just a power display. Ah, <laughs> oh, God displayed his ability, his energy, his sheer strength, his authority, his dominion when he raised Christ from the dead and set him at his own right hand far above the enemy. So that's Christ's position. But now notice the believer's position in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1, and you. See, grammatically, this is all tied together. And you, hath he quickened, verse 6, and raised us up together. Remember, just talked about him. And made us sit together in the heavenly places, in the spiritual realm, in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the point. When God raised Christ, he raised us in Christ. And... When God seated Christ, he seated us in Christ. Why? Because the head, Jesus, and the body, believers, must of necessity be raised together. And that is the imagery in the last two verses here in chapter 1. Here's the point. God displayed his mighty power when he raised Christ from the dead and you. Because when you believe on Jesus, you're placed into him. That's how this works. So God displayed his mighty power when he raised Christ from the dead and every believer in Jesus and when he seated Christ at his own right hand and every believer in Jesus. That's why there's this amazing power display. Now here's the point. 
The Bible tells us in passages like Galatians 3 that the moment you put your faith in Jesus, not only are your sins forgiven, not only is his righteousness legally credited to your account, not only do you receive his eternal life, but the moment you place your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit immerses you into Christ. You're baptized into Christ. See, water baptism pictures spirit baptism. That the moment you believe in Jesus, you are placed into Jesus. You're in him. Now, you need to understand, and I need to understand, that is not figurative, it is literal. It's just that it's spiritual, not physical. But it's just as real as if it were physical. You see, right now, physically, we are in Redwood City. <laughs> I've got to think, where, where am I? I'm in a different place every week. Where are you? I don't know. I'm, people call me, where are you? I'm, I don't know. Let me think. <laughs> uh, but, okay, right now, physically, we are in Redwood City, California. But do you know, for every child of God in this room, if you are, in fact, saved... In the spirit realm, you're there. It's not figurative, it's literal. It's just that it's spiritual, not physical. And do you know in the spiritual realm, you don't have the, the boundaries that you have in the geographical realm? Ah. So in the spirit realm, you're there. This is how you can do battle with the powers of darkness in a country on the other side of the world from here as if you were there. That'll change how you pray for missionaries. Now, friends, if you're saved, you're in him. He's on the throne, which means you're there. So missionary to China, 1930s, Ruth Paxson puts it this way. In Christ, we are as far above the powers of darkness as Christ is. Now, friends, if we were in North Georgia, we could shout hallelujah. <laughs> they know how to do it down there. <laughs> but that's okay. We're in California. And in Michigan, they really don't know what it's like down in North Georgia, <laughs> where I'm from. Uh, but I'm telling you, folks, this is an amazing thing, that in Christ... We are as far above the powers of darkness as Christ is. In the spiritual dimension, in the spiritual realm, that is true right now if you're a child of God. That's provision. It's positional provision. Now, when Jesus regained all authority, he redelegated it. Originally, God delegated the kingdom of earth to mankind. That was lost. Jesus regained it. But what did he say there to his disciples? He said, all authority is given unto me. Now go, go therefore. The redelegation is to the church. It's to God's people. It's to believers. He's the head. We're the body. That's what the end of Ephesians 1 said. We read it a second ago. He's the head. It's his authority. We're the body. We're connected. There's some uh, amazing provision here. There's a redelegation of this authority to his body, the church, believers in Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. Can a body function without a head? Okay, the kids get this. They're all answering right. All the adults are sitting there like, I'm not sure. <laughs> I wish we could video, not just the preacher, but video the, the audience. You, you, got, you got to see what we see, you know. I mean, we actually do see things, you know. Uh, but uh, the kids, oh, yeah, this is obvious. Okay, you know, keep going here. I mean, they're right with me. I love it. No, 
A body cannot function without a head. Now, I, I, I have seen a few chickens try. <laughs> Out on a ranch in Colorado, you know, they chop off the chicken's head and the body still runs around like a chick. Well, it is a chicken. <laughs> well, okay, that's where that comes from. Uh, the body still runs around, but eventually it drops. <laughs> Quite fascinating to watch. A body cannot function without a head. It's going to drop. Well, let me ask you another question. Does a head function without a body? No. See, Jesus is the head. We're the body. As the body, we cannot function without him, the head. As the head, who could do whatever he wanted, he has chosen not to function without us, the body. Now, God could have done this however he wanted to, but in his sovereign wisdom, he has delegated responsibility that's an actually an amazing privilege to his children. As the body cannot function without a head, the head has chosen not to function without the body. You see, he has delegated that authority. Uh, one author, again from 1930s, missionary to China, John McMillan, puts it this way. It's like a police officer who's in uniform, got his badge on, and he's directing traffic at an intersection, and here comes a big, huge truck that can physically flatten him. But he goes like this. <laughs> now, physically, he doesn't have the power to stop the truck, but because of that badge, he's got the power. He's got the authority, the delegated authority to stop the truck. Now, friends, in similar fashion, you and I have delegated authority. On our own, we're no match to Satan. He can flatten us. But we're not on our own. And Satan is no match to Jesus. And when we submit ourselves to what God says is so, we can resist the devil. And he's got to not just stop. He's got to go the other way. And he will flee from you. James 4, 7. See, that's called delegated authority. So how does this work? That brings us to our third truth. Not only comprehend the person of authority and the position of authority, but now finally comprehend the privileges of authority. Again, verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe? That's in the present tense, who are believing. In other words, this is not just a one-time thing. This is a repeated possibility. It is the, uh, the provision to believe and to believe again and to believe again. We can keep accessing and keep exercising his authority when needed. To those of us who are believing, that's tremendous. Now... Often we get this mucked up in our minds. There are some who have taken matters to an excess. And because of that, we get afraid of certain Bible concepts and Bible words, as I mentioned earlier. It is dangerous to misuse the Word of God, to go beyond what it says. It's also dangerous in the sense of sad, because you're anemic, if you don't use what God gave you to use. So most of the time, we just ignore this realm. The spiritual warfare thing, you know, it's for the missionaries in, you know, South America and Africa and Asia, whatever. But now wait a second. The devil doesn't just work in other countries. He works right here in ours. And it's becoming more and more overt by the day almost. But God's given us provision. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 29... Or else, how can one enter a strong man's house? Now, in that context, the strong man is referencing Satan. How can one enter a strong man's house and spoil his good, except he first bind the strong man? 
See, there's responsibility. Now, again, often we just, we don't touch this. And if we begin to touch it, we ask God to do it when he's actually telling us to. (laughs) In Matthew 18, an amazing context that talks about tensions among God's people and when that happens and you try to, to deal with it and if you don't get anywhere, you bring another person in and then it goes to the church and so forth. And then there's our verse I'm going to mention in a moment and then it talks about forgiveness. So in the, in the context of tensions among God's people, which the implication is are often stirred up by the enemy. You have the great verse and where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. But you know what verse precedes it? This is Matthew 18 verse 8. Jesus said, Verily I say to you, whatsoever you bind on earth. You shall be bound in heaven. The verb tense is shall have been bound in heaven. You know why? Because Jesus already won this thing at the cross. But we miss out if we don't access by faith what God told us to access. So he says, whatsoever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And often we just ignore this, or we kind of tap at the door saying, God, would you bind? That's what I used to do. I used to ignore it. And then when I first started treading on this, I would say, no, God, would you do this? And then I realized over and over again, no, he's telling me to. He's telling you to. God wants you to recognize the authority is not you, it's him, but you have to exercise it. And it's time the enemy get bound so that people can get loosed. That's what it's talking about. Even in Jude, where the angel durst not bring a railing accusation against the enemy, but rather said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, there's the truth. It was the Lord's authority, but the angel exercised it. And in similar fashion, that's what we've been told to do. You remember when Jesus walked this earth as a man? He was fully God, but because of kenosis, remember that word for those of you that were here two years ago? You got to act like, yes, I remember every detail. (laughs) But he was functioning as a man. You remember what he said? Get behind me, Satan. He wasn't praying to Satan. He's commanding him. It's authority. Now, friends... Jesus won it all back at the cross. He has delegated it to those who will believe. And we have the privilege of exercising his authority against the enemy. Of submitting ourselves to God, resisting the devil so that he must flee. Now let me just say this. There's, there's, a, there's an obvious prerequisite we might say. You can't do this if you're caving into the flesh. Because if you're caving into the flesh, according to Ephesians 2, same book, you're following the deceptions of Satan's will, as we talked about yesterday. Otto Koning, missionary to Papua New Guinea, famous for what's called the pineapple story. You can look it up. Oh, yes. Uh, Koning, uh, he's a dear friend. Uh, he's still alive, by the way. You know, you read these stories and you think, oh, this guy's got to be, you know, like 500 years ago. No, was, you know, he's still alive. Okay. Uh, uh, he's 500 years old. No. Uh, <laughs> but uh, when he teaches on spiritual warfare, he says, you cannot resist Satan if you're listening to Satan in some way. Makes sense. You see, in Ephesians, same book, chapter 4, it says, neither give place to the devil. Did you know that the devil can't take place unless you give it? 
cannot take ground unless you give it. You know, God will not violate a man's will. It's amazing. God could do what he wanted to, but he gave man the freedom. You are free to choose. That's what he says in Genesis. It's called the free will. Okay. And just as the Holy Spirit will not violate a man's will, um, he stirs so that man will put their faith in Jesus. In the same way, God does not allow Satan to violate our wills either. That's a great truth. But you can give place to the devil. That's a scary thought. And he'll take any ground you give him. And in that context, when the Bible says neither give place to the devil, it's talking about anger, resentment, deep-rooted bitternesses. Apparently, those things can give ground to the devil. We know from other passages uh, that some of the sexual sins can give ground to the enemy and so forth. You see, the point is, if you're walking in darkness by caving into the flesh, you're not in a position of faith to exercise throne seat authority. You have the provision, but you won't have the faith for it because you're caving in. So if that's the case, what do you need to do? Walk in the light. Uh, 1 John 1, 7. Uh, 1 John 1, 9. Confess. Get honest. And the moment you do, the blood of Jesus cleans you up and you can take that cleansing by faith and get back to walking in the Spirit. Because when you walk in the Spirit, as we saw at the end of the message last night, you can move beyond to warring from the throne when it's needed. That's what we're talking about tonight. Now, it must be remembered that the authority that Christ has redelegated to the believer is in the spiritual realm because the kingdom right now is a spiritual kingdom. So this is not in the physical realm. In other words, some people go around, they command uh, you know, birds and rocks and whatever. Okay, they're, they're missing it. It's in the spiritual realm. However, where the two realms connect, in other words, where the spiritual realm interpenetrates with the physical realm, as in the concept of demon possession, then authority can be exercised in the spiritual realm. That's in the spiritual realm, but it will have ramifications into the physical realm. The domino effect, as in the casting out of a demon. Now, here's what we need to understand. Christ won all at the cross. Satan's head was crushed, bruised at the cross. Genesis 3.15. Now God has chosen, according to the book of Revelation, we're told that this will be fully manifested in the future. But here's what we got to get. In the spiritual realm, Satan is at a disadvantage right now. Because in the spiritual realm, right this moment, Satan has been totally defeated. And when you and I cave into our flesh and walk in the flesh and walk in darkness, we place ourselves under a defeated foe. It is foolish. But when you walk in the Spirit, you can move beyond that to warring from the throne and exercising throne seat authority. So how does this work? Well, when you're tempted, we uh, dealt with this four years ago, some temptation, much temptation, comes from the realm where we can see it. We can see what's tempting us. Maybe it's a picture. Maybe it's a poster. Uh, sometimes it's something we hear or something we smell and uh, uh, whatever. In other words, it's in the physical realm. But sometimes we're tempted, and it's not physical at all. And you're thinking, where's that coming from? In other words, here you are, you're thinking about something that you're doing at work or if you're at home, maybe working on a project, and all of a sudden, a vile pattern of thoughts comes rolling across your brain. And you're thinking, good night. Where did that come from? Okay, 
That's not from the physical realm. That's not a Christ in you issue to deal with down here. It's a you in Christ issue to deal with the spiritual realm. That's what Ephesians calls a fiery dart. We're out of the blue, it seems. It's not in the physical realm. There is this temptation triggered in your mind, sometimes your emotions. You ever just found yourself in a very dark mood and you can't figure out why? Now, sometimes we get in a bad mood and we know why. Okay, this happened, this happened, and whatever. Okay, uh, I get that. That's, that's in the physical realm. But sometimes you're in a bad mood and there, there's nothing in the physical realm. You're just in a bad mood. That's a fiery dart. But we better learn how to deal with this. Because remember, temptation itself is not sin. And when you recognize, wait a second, this is a fiery dart. You can take the provision that already is. You're already in him. You're already on the throne in him. You're already far above the enemy. You can take that reality. You're in Christ. You can claim your position in him and you can act on it. You can trust and obey. Just like we trust and obey accessing Jesus in us to deal with the world and the flesh, we can trust and obey. We can take and act in this matter of authority. We can claim our position in Christ on the throne and exercise his authority over the enemy. For example, this, these thoughts come rolling across your brain thinking, good grief, wait a second. That's a fiery dart. God, I claim my position in you. That's taking by faith what God says is so. You're in him. I claim my position in you. And God, I reject this. That's acting on it. What you're doing is you're submitting yourself to God. You're resisting the devil, and he has to flee. You're lifting up the shield of faith, as Ephesians 6 says, and it extinguishes the fiery dart. And that trigger of temptation just evaporates. And there's a lift in your spirit that is discernible. That's amazing. The dark mood. Lord, it seems to me that there's no reason for this. This must be a fiery dart. God, I claim my position in you and I reject this bad mood. And that fiery dart is extinguished. There's a lift in your spirit that's discernible. It's not a soul level feeling, but it's a spirit to spirit level sensing. Whoa, you're free. There's no more of that binding. Ah, she got loosed. <laughs> ah. Wow. I remember talking to some guys that had, they were in an addictions program and we dealt with this matter of fiery darts. And a day or two later, I came back to preach another message and they said, you know that what you told us about taking Jesus and rejecting the fiery dart? Man, that works. <laughs> Hallelujah. Because he works. <laughs> Satan is also a deceiver we're told. And so one of his deceptions is distortion. Now distortion means there's something in the physical realm that gets distorted in the spiritual realm. In other words, somebody says something they shouldn't say, but quite frankly, not a big deal. But what if it gets magnified? In other words, they said something in the physical realm that was unkind, but in the spiritual realm, it's like the enemy puts a magnifying glass over that and you don't see it as a little bump in the road. You see it as this mountain-sized offense. And if you don't recognize what's going on and you cave into your flesh, you can respond with all the fury that a mountain-sized offense might pull out of you. 
when it's really just a little bump in the road and everybody's thinking, man, what's the matter with you? Ever been there? I remember one time, I was so angry. And this is tragic, but I was. I was ticked off. I mean, I was spitting mad. <laughs> and, you know, I'm just sputtering, spitting, and, you know, not really spitting, spitting, but you know what I'm saying. I'm just flat mad. So I remember, okay, I stopped and thought to myself, okay, all right, well, what am I mad about? <laughs> it was such, such a small matter. I thought, oh, man. I just fell prey to distortion. And I preach on this regularly. <laughs> so we've got to learn to recognize it. See, excessiveness, the magnification. Excessiveness is a sign that the enemy is involved. How about excessive fear? There's a fear that God gives us in the sense of a proper caution. But then there's excessive fear... And the Bible says God has not given us the spirit of fear. John McMillan, that missionary in China that I mentioned a moment ago, he said that his son loved storms. <laughs> and they were out on a boat on some big river in China and the storm whipped up. And he said, for whatever reason, this day his son was just freaking out. Scared to death, fearful, just, just going bananas. And he thought, wow, this is so unlike him. And then he thought, wait a second. This is unlike him. This, this isn't him. This is the enemy distorting things and trying to produce fear. See, the spirit of fear taking over. So the father said, all right, Lord, if this is in the, the enemy, if you're not sure, don't say it is. But just say, Lord, if. Uh, because you don't want to give ground if it's not there. But he was pretty sure. But he said, Lord, if this is the enemy, I claim my position in you and I reject what the enemy's doing to my son. Immediately, the boy calmed down, was fine, and the next day they had a storm that was way worse, and the kid was on the top deck having a blast. <laughs> wow. How about excessive anger that I just mentioned? That kind of thing. I spoke on this one time in Pennsylvania, and a dear lady told me the next night, she said, i got to tell you a story. When you were talking last night about excessive anger, she says, I work at a home uh, for some handicapped adult ladies, and she said, we have a lot of Down syndrome ladies, and she says, when they get mad at each other, he said, they, she said, it, it, it usually goes for hours, like all day. And it's just, that's what we do all day, is deal with this anger. Uh, and she said, I got to thinking, well, that's excessive. So she said, today... Sure enough, something happened. Somebody did something. Somebody said something. And one of them was whooping it up, getting mad again. And she said, I put my arm around her and said, come with me. <laughs> and she said, I snuck in a room and said, God, if the enemy's stirring up this dear lady, I claim my position in you and I exercise your authority over the powers of darkness stirring her up. She said, immediately, this Down syndrome lady calmed right back down and went out and had a fun day. She said, that never happens. She goes, that's so amazing. She said, God did that. It's like a missionary in China. He was on one side of the wall. On the other side of the wall, there was another missionary couple, and they were having a fight, like a verbal fight, you know. And he's thinking to himself, well, you know, I know a husband and wife can have a tiff, but uh, this one's really, this one's getting out of hand. <laughs> and he said, it was so out of character for this couple. He said, I knew them well for years. He said, they never were like this. And he said, I'm sitting there thinking, you know what? This is the enemy. 
So here they don't even know that he can overhear them in the next room, the next office. He said, Lord, I claim my position in you on the throne. And if the enemy's stirring up my brother and sister over here, I claim my position in you and I exercise your authority. See, take act. I exercise your authority over the powers of darkness, stirring them up. He said immediately their voices calmed back down, the volume decreased, they reconciled with each other and went on with their work. Now, is everybody lying or are these true stories? See, this is amazing. This is provision. You see, the enemy can be bound so that people can be loosed. It's throne seat authority. And there's times when it's defense. There's times when it's offense. You don't have to seek any of this. You just need to know what to do when it comes to you. I remember when we were near the Vietnam border in the country of Cambodia. A gospel event. We're going to have two gospel services out on the edge of town. The pastor was an amazing man. He was blind, but he pastored this church, and so they had sent word all over the town. We're going to have these gospel services. Well, in that town, it was so far out in the country, the Buddhists did not have a temple. They didn't even have the small version of what they do. I can't remember what the name for that is. He said, but when they heard that we were going to have gospel service, they set one of those little small things up on the edge of the road so that when people coming from the town out to the church on the edge of town, they would have to pass by this little booth, and they had these big speakers, and they were blaring at unbelievable volume, a very, I don't mean to be unkind, I'm just describing it to you the best I can, a very guttural, ugly sounding gibberish. I have no idea if it was words, I, I don't know, but it was not aesthetic. And as we're setting up the chairs for our event, we're thinking this isn't going to work. We're not going to be able to outshout that speaker. It's too loud. Then we thought, wait a second, this has got to be the enemy. See, as Conan says, the enemy has two major tactics. He's got many minor things, but two major tactics. One is to tempt us to sin, and two is to interfere with ministry. Well, this was interference with ministry. And we realized this isn't going to work. And then we thought, well, this has got to be the enemy. So a couple of us got together. Now look, we're nothing, but Jesus is everything. We, the best we understood, exercised his authority over the powers of darkness that were seeking to hinder the gospel cause. Do you know within three minutes, all that sound shut down. It was never turned on again. We had a ton of people come, two gospel services, and 70 people put their faith in Jesus Christ. Wow. See, that's warfare. See, Corinthians tells us that the God of this world seeks to blind people lest they see the glorious light of the gospel. How does he blind them? That's with lies. See, sometimes it's just sheer interference. But the blindness means that there is a lie that they're imbibing, and so they can't see the truth, even when they hear it. You see, it's called a stronghold in another passage. And when you buy into lies, then Satan gets this stronghold in your thinking. And when that happens, it's a blindness. It's a deafness, as it were. I remember a dear lady in one of our meetings. Uh, uh, her uh, cousin uh, had brought her to the service that night. The cousin was in the church. She was a believer in Jesus. And this unsaved cousin, she did not yet know the Lord. And so afterwards, we talked, and, and it was the pastor and I and the two ladies. And here's what the unsaved lady said. She says, I cannot get saved. Now, here's the lie that she was believing. She said, I cannot get saved because 
I have a son who at 18 years of age committed suicide and she's beginning to weep now. She says, I know it's my fault. I know it's my fault. He committed suicide. He killed himself. She, she said, that makes me a murderer. And therefore, I cannot become a Christian. Now I want to ask you a question. Can a murderer become a Christian? Yes, they can. Do you realize the only sin that can keep a person out of heaven is not putting your faith in Jesus? That's the only sin that can keep you out of heaven is not believing in Jesus. That's why the Holy Spirit convicts of, of, uh, 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 of sin because they believe not on me. That's the biggie. Well, I explained that to her. This was a very intelligent lady. Good job, so forth. I explained that Saul of Tarsus, who later became Paul, was a part of the murder of Stephen. He got saved. God used him even. <laughs> Greatly. Well, every Bible argument that we use that should make sense to a very brilliant mind, it didn't penetrate. It's like everything we said went around her or over her. And I'm sitting there looking at her and thinking, this is an intelligent lady. Everything we said should have decimated that lie. She's blind. This is warfare. And so I said to the others in the room, do you mind if we get on our knees? So we all got on our knees, including the unsaved lady. Now, friends, I'm going to tell you something. I'm not anything. I understand that. That is for sure. But Jesus is everything. And we're in him. And the best I understood, I exercised Christ's authority over the powers of darkness that were blinding that lady with that lie. When I said amen, we all looked up. I reviewed the gospel that Jesus saves. And I said uh, uh, since he's willing to save you, are you willing to put your faith in him right now? She said, of course. <laughs> she could see. Now, friends, that's throne seat authority. Now, let's wrap this up. You've been a very patient audience. Peter tells us under inspiration that Satan walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The truth of the matter is Satan is after individuals, trying to keep lost people blind so that they die and go to hell. He's after saved people to get you discouraged, defeated, vandalized, think you're a dirt ball, <laughs> like some of the things we looked at last night, so that you're defeated. So he's after individuals. He's after marriages. Is he not? He's after families trying to destroy our young people so that they walk away from God. He's after churches. He's trying to knock them down in any way he can, either from the inside out or from the outside in. He's after God's people. He's a deceiver, we're told. He is a liar. Jesus said he's the father of lies. He's the accuser of the brethren. He is the tempter. tempter. He is the hinderer. But I'm going to tell you something, friends. Jesus won the victory over Satan at the cross, and we're in him. And he's on the throne far above the enemy, and we're right there. And it is time that we, by faith, take our provision in Christ that he has provided and exercise his authority where needed over the powers of darkness. If you're not sure, just say, Lord, if this is the enemy, I claim my position in you, and I reject this. I exercise your authority. See, it's not a matter of particular words. It's a matter of a faith transaction. And watch God work. Let's bow our heads for prayer.